Good morning, New Hope. I'm really glad that you've joined us today on YouTube Live. And if you have your outlines, which you can pick up at the bottom of our YouTube channel, it'd be great to just pull them out right now. This morning, I want to talk to you about what Jesus completed on the cross. Now, how many of you, like me, have said, I just can't seem to get it all done. There's always something more to do. You know, you look at your emails, perhaps, or maybe it's the jobs around the place, or maybe it's the backlog of washing, or whatever that may be. Stuff to fix, stuff to paint. And you've often thought to yourself, perhaps like I have, well, if I could just get some time, I'd get all caught up. Huh? I've thought that many times. Or maybe you thought, man, I never seem to get all of my jobs finished. Well, I understand how that feels. So here's the bad news. The bad news is you're never going to get it all finished, and neither am I. You and I will die with stuff still left on our to-do list. And why is that? Because we live on a broken planet. And there's not enough time to finish everything that we need to get done or we think we need to get done. There's always unfinished projects, there's unfulfilled dreams, and unfinished plans. In fact, there's only one person ever in history who's ever finished everything that he had to do before he died, and that was Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, verse 34, you'll see that in your outline here, it says this, Jesus is speaking, he says, I must finish the work that God gave me to do. Now, fortunately for you and for me, Jesus did finish it. And John tells us about this. On Good Friday, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus was hanging on the cross at the end of his suffering. John records the words of Jesus in John 19, verse 28 and 30. Knowing that all of it was now completed, and so that scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And after Jesus was given a drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So Jesus had been on the cross for hours and his throat and his voice were completely parched. But he wants everyone to hear what he's about to say. So he asked for a drink so he could clear his throat. He takes that drink of sour wine, which was offered to him in a hyssop branch. That's got all sorts of echoes of the Passover, if you look into that. And then he shouts these words, it is finished. It's done, he's saying, it's completed. Now, last July, we celebrated the 50th anniversary from 1969 when Neil Armstrong and his fellow astronauts landed on the moon. You know, the, the lunar module, um, and, and his famous words were, do you remember what they were? The eagle has landed. Now, how many of you remember that? I know many of you do. I had to ask Martin and Grant, because they were a bit older than me, because I was just a baby when that happened. But these three words, it is finished, are way more important than what happened on that moon that day. They are the most important words in history. Nothing compares to these words that Jesus shouted when he said, it is finished. But ironically, and this is really amazing to get a grip on, that when Jesus shouted those words from the cross, it is finished, nobody that was standing around really understood what he was saying and what that meant. Because 
Each of the different sectors of the people that were witnessing this had a different take on this. Let's take one of them. The first one, the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers thought, wow, this radical revolutionary, yep, he's finished. That's fine with us. It's done. We can go back and continue playing our games. The other sector would be the religious leaders. And they're the ones who put him on the cross. And they probably thought, yeah, our competition is finished. The third kind of perspective I want to look at is from Pilate. Pilate, the governor, would have thought, oh my goodness, my political headache is finally gone. And these Jewish rebel rousers will calm down finally. It's finished. Now, even the disciples would have thought, yep, it's finished all right. Our dream has died. The very thing we long for and hope for, the kingdom coming in, being rid of these Roman oppressors, Romans being overthrown, and now, actually, we are finished. But, friends, notice, Jesus didn't say, I'm finished, because he certainly wasn't. So what exactly was finished at that day? Well, obviously his suffering was over. It was done. He was dead. And his pain, yep, no pain in death. Yep, the humiliation of dying a criminal's death on a cross was finally over. It's finished. That's all true. But there is so much more. And this morning, I want you to join me as we look at the five things that Jesus finished on the cross. And I want you to have a super clear understanding of what this phrase means, because it is the core of Christianity. Now this phrase, it is finished, it's just one word in the Greek, and that's the word tetelestai. And it actually had five colors of meaning. And all of these meanings have a bearing on what Jesus shouted on the cross when he said, it is finished. The first was used by, it was used by servants who, you know, they, or employees. The boss had given them a job to do, you know, go down, clear that paddock, whatever it may be. And they'd come back to the boss and they'd say, Tetelestai, job's done. And Jesus was saying there, the job that God gave me, it's done. It's completed. Finished. The second way the word tetelestai was often used was by judges. And judges would use the word tetelestai when perhaps you'd done a crime and you'd served your time and you'd paid your debt to your fellow man and country and society. So they would take a stamp and they would stamp tetelestai on your record, which really meant that justice had been done. So in a, a a very real way, Jesus was also saying that when he died, and he used that word tetelestai. Jesus meant too that justice has been served. When he shouted it, it's been done. Justice is served. The third way tetelestai was used was by accountants. An accountants would stamp a debt that had been paid in full. Now, there are Middle Eastern documents, which I've actually been looking at this week. You'll see one there on the screen. These are tax bills. And Jesus said, to Tetelestai, meaning that your debt is paid in full. The fourth way the word Tetelestai was used was in an artist 
would do a beautiful picture, perhaps the Mona Lisa. And at the very last stroke of the brush, when the artist had finished, they would sit back and look at it. The masterpiece is complete. Every detail is done. The painting is finished. And they would use the word to It's finished. Fifth and finally, the word to was used by priests, Jewish priests, as they went into the temple and they would offer their sacrifice to God and then they would come out and they would say, Tetelestai, which means, in their case, the sacrifice had been made. And that's exactly what Jesus had just done. The sacrifice had been made. You can pick this up in Hebrews 12, 10, 12. It says this, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. It is finished once for all. Now, all five of these phrases, the job is complete, justice has been served, the debt has been paid, the picture's finished, and the sacrifice has been made, Jesus is saying in all of these things, it is done. It is finished. So this single word sums up Christianity in a nutshell. And if you get this one phrase, you will understand how Christianity is radically different from every other faith. And the reason is, there's nothing more for you to do because Christ has done it all. So what did Jesus actually finish on the cross? He did five things. Now, the first task Jesus finished on the cross was this. Number one, he fulfilled what God had promised us. He fulfilled what God had promised us. So for thousands of years, God had been promising to send a saviour. You can read that all through the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the saviour was going to be sent to forgive us and save us from all of our sins. Now, there are hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. Actually, 380 prophecies of what the coming saviour will do. Now, the Old Testament gives us a partial glimpse of God when we, when we read it. It's kind of like a shadow. It gives you an outline. But when Jesus comes, he fills in the details. And we can see much more clearly. Now, here's what Jesus told some people after he was raised on Easter Sunday. Luke 22, verse 44. Jesus said, this is what I told you when I was still with you. That's before he died. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. He's referring there to the Old Testament. And he said all those things that are written about me for thousands of years had to be fulfilled, and they were fulfilled in Jesus. Then he opened their minds, the Bible says, so he could understand, so they could understand scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. On the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So Jesus is saying, I just fulfilled all of those promises in the Old Testament, all of them, every last one of them, and all of the prophecies that have been given for thousands of years before he came. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, all of God's promises had been 
fulfilled, there's that word, in him. That's why we say amen when we give glory to God through Christ. So God had promised he would send a saviour, and he did. The second thing that Jesus finished for us on the cross, I love that word, finished, is he satisfied what God's justice required. Now God is a God of justice. People, as I'm sure you've discovered, can be very unfair. But God cannot be unfair because he is perfect. Now the reason why you and I have this sense of fairness and justice and we get offended when that's broken is that we were created in God's image. So God our creator made everything run in accordance with his laws that work every time. For example, the law of gravity, the law of physics, the law of logic, the law of chemistry, the law of mathematics. Those are laws which are unbreakable. But God also gave spiritual laws and moral laws to Moses and to the people of Israel. Now these laws, all they did is show us, whoa, we can't meet these. We keep breaking them. We, we don't match up. We keep missing the mark. So these laws show us our need for Savior because you and I are unable to keep God's perfect laws. Now, some people keep some of the laws some of the time, but none of us keep all of the laws all of the time. In other words, we're not perfect. Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weaknesses in our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end, this is good news, to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law, nothing wrong with the law, will be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So Jesus was the only person who ever followed God's laws completely. He gave himself for you and I so that he could offer us something that we could never attain or gain on our own. Now in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were continually offered at the temple. And the purpose of those animal sacrifices was to show the Israelites the seriousness of sin. Blood had to be shed so that sins could be pardoned. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. But the blood of animals could never really remove sins. You can see that in Hebrews 10.4. But the sacrifices could only point to the future coming of Jesus, to the future sacrifice that Jesus would make as the one and only perfect sacrifice which paid the penalty of all of our sins. So, the first problem is that we were unable to keep God's perfect law. So the second problem is related to that. Justice requires that lawbreakers pay a penalty. Now, if I break a law, there's a penalty. Fairness and justice require consequences to moral abrogations and breaking of the law. So if someone's caught stealing money, from you, and there were no consequence, that wouldn't be right, right? That would be completely unfair. 
Now, Jesus did for us on the cross what God's justice demanded and required from us. He finished what we could not finish. He could offer us something, therefore, that we could never gain on our own. Hebrews 5 gets at this. Verse 9. After Jesus finished his work on the cross, he became the source of eternal salvation. The source, notice that, of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. So Jesus is able to do that because he alone satisfied God's justice. He did it for you and he did it for me. He did it for all of mankind and he offers that to us. What we have to do is to accept that. Romans 10 forces this. Christ ended the law. See that? He ended the law so that anyone who believes in him may be right with God. So the way to be right with God is to be in Christ. Anyone who believes in him. Now that's an interesting phrase. Anyone that believes in him. How does that become even true in your life? What does that mean? I mean, you believe, you trust in what he did for you. That's what it means. And in exchange, he says, I want to give you what you could not gain on your own. Now, as we sum up this point, the second point, everything we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes in a sentence. Romans 5.8 says this, not on your outline, but it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were sinners, helpless. In other words, couldn't do anything for ourselves. Christ died for us. Isn't that great? So number two, he satisfied what God's justice required. Number three, the third thing that Jesus did and completed and finished up on the cross, he paid off the debt that I owe God. He paid off the debt, and it is enormous that debt, inconceivably large. He paid off the debt that I owe God. Now, in a sense, you and I owe something to everybody that you or I have ever hurt or offended or sinned against. But you and I are in much greater debt to God. It's a debt so big that you and I would never be able to repay it. But here's the good news. Colossians 2.14 says, But we owed a debt because we've broken God's laws. That debt listed all the rules we've failed to follow. But here's the good part. God forgave our debt and he cancelled our debt by nailing it to the cross. Some versions talk about a certificate of debt with all of its strikes against me. And that was then nailed to the cross, paid for in full, to tell us die in the blood of Jesus. Now, that is amazing. Can you ever imagine that if you got a call out of nowhere today and your bank said, hey, we've decided to cancel all of your debt and we're going to wipe it out. Your debt is forgiven. How would you feel about that? <laughs> Man, you'd have a liberty and a joy and a freedom and you'd be leaping up and down, right? You want to leap for joy because your debt had been forgiven. And friend, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross for you. He paid off the debt that I owe God that I could never repay. Colossians 1.14 says, God's son paid 
the price to free us, which means that our sins are forgiven. So you ask, which sins are forgiven? All of them, every single one of them. And that's the amazing thing that Jesus Christ did. Think about that slowly, all of them. Now the Bible says this in Hebrews 10, 18. Now that sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifice or sacrifices. You know what your problem is? You and I can often be tempted to try and pay for our sins in our life that have already been paid for. Sometime back, my wife and I were at a restaurant with another couple. And towards the end of the meal, I went to pay the bill with the waitress. And she said, Mr. Buckley, there's no need to pay the bill. It's been paid in full. There's nothing left owing. And what I didn't know is my friend had come in, given the waitress the credit card ahead of time, and taken out of the bill in full. Now, in many ways, this replicates exactly what Jesus has done for us. But we keep trying to pay the bill. Friend, the bill has been paid. Jesus Christ paid for every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. When he paid on the cross for the sins of humanity, he died for every one of them. There is none that are left out. But many of us go around carrying unnatural guilt because they don't realize that their sin has been totally forgiven. And in their mind, they're thinking, well, maybe if I just do this, or then God will forgive me. And friend, what you're really trying to do is pay for the sins that have already been paid for. You do not need to pay a bill twice. And that's good news. He paid off the debt that I owe God, and there's nothing more that you and I can do. It's finished. So, Jesus fulfilled God's promises. Second, he satisfied God's justice. And third, he paid off the debt that I owed God. Number four is a big one. He defeated the fear of death. Now, on the cross, Jesus defeated the fear of death. And this is a universal fear. It doesn't matter which country you're in, Uganda, America, Canada, England, Australia, it doesn't matter. Jesus broke the fear and the power of death. The Bible says this in Romans 5, 17. The sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us. Now that's the problem. But all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So how did Jesus break the power of sin and death in our lives? Next verse, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Jesus became flesh and blood. In other words, he became a human being by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die. God can't die, so he had to come in a human form. Only as a human being could his body die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all of their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Now let me explain something. If Jesus Christ had not been resurrected, you would have no idea that there is life after death. 
At best, you'd be guessing or hoping. You'd have no proof. You'd have no knowledge that there's anything after death. Now, the only reason that you know today that there is life after death is because Jesus Christ is resurrected. And the fifth and the final reason that Jesus said, it is finished. And the fifth task that he finished is this. He destroyed Satan's power to control me. That is massive. What? Yeah, he did that on the cross. You know, when you look at that cross, from some perspectives, it looked like evil was winning. But Jesus then cuts through all of that. And he shouts out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Then he gives up his spirit. Now, let me be frank with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, and you don't have his spirit in your life, you'll be powerless against Satan's traps and his tricks. But the Bible says, if you have God's spirit in you, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So you wouldn't have access to God's power unless you have God's spirit inside of you. You'll be trying hard, sure you will, in your own strength. But both you and I know how badly that misses the mark. Now, a couple of thoughts here. How does Satan manipulate you? Well, two of his favorite ways to manipulate you are by, one, minimizing temptation up front, and then two, maximizing condemnation at the back end. So he tempts you by minimizing. You know, it's no big deal if you do that. Everybody's shading that and doing this. Go ahead. You won't get caught anyway. And then he maximizes the rejection and the guilt and the condemnation that you feel later. And he'll whisper in your ear something like, well, God's never going to love you again. Look what you did again. Now, both thoughts are not the truth. Well, that's no surprise, really, because, right, he's a father of lies, and he always lies. So two of its tactics are temptation and condemnation. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus did in these next two verses on these two issues. Number one, Jesus gives us the power to overcome temptation. How? How, how does he do that? Well, firstly, Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us, that's Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. How did he do that? By the payment of for all of our sins, we are now forgiven. We're born again out of one kingdom and into another kingdom. Then Jesus helps us when temptation comes. He doesn't condemn us, but he helps us. So whenever we're tempted, remember to call out for help. And Jesus promises he'll always provide a way of escape and deliver us. Hebrews 2.18 talks about this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, do you call out for him when you are tempted? Because all of us are. When was the last time you called out for a way of escape that you wouldn't succumb? The Holy Spirit was sent to be our helper and our counselor. And you and I are no longer slaves who are absolutely compelled to yield to temptation. Jesus sets us free. When we yield control to him. That's what 
being Christ as Lord means. We yield control to him. Secondly, Jesus destroyed Satan's power to accuse you and condemn you. See, Satan can't condemn you anymore. Why? Because when he tries to condemn you, the transaction is completed. You are completely forgiven. Colossians 2.15 says this, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And he openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross, where your sins were all, you may want to circle that word, all taken away. Well, how did that work? Again, going back to a previous verse in Colossians 2.14, it worked by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. If you've ever had a ticket, you know what a legal demand is. Pay up, or it's Bay Corp, or it's a clink. That's how it goes. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, if you have God's Spirit in your life, you've invited him into you, Satan has no power over you if you don't yield it to him. You are either controlled by the Spirit or by the flesh. How can you yield power back to Satan? Well, I want to give you a couple of thoughts on that one. Be careful of fears. That will yield power because God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Bitterness can yield power back to Satan. Anxiety can yield, be anxious for nothing. An anxious, anxiety, be anxious for nothing. Forgiveness. Forgive and it will be forgiven you. Give, you know, so temptation, if you keep giving in willingly and yielding to that, well, you're going to give power back to Satan. But here's the point I want you to notice. He doesn't have any power over you unless you yield it to him. Because Jesus destroyed his power to control you on the cross. So let me summarize. From your outline. When Jesus died on the cross, he says this word, tetelestai. It's finished. It's all over. It's done. It's complete. He's saying this. Number one, I fulfilled all of God's promises and his prophecies. Number two, he said, I satisfied God's judgment so that you don't have to be judged for sin. Oh, we'll have an accountability for what we've done with our lives. That's another message. Number three. I paid off the debt that you owed to God. This is my deal for you. I paid the debt that you owed to God. Four, I defeated the fear of death. So you didn't have to be afraid. You're going to relocate from earth to heaven. Boom. I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going. And number five, he destroyed Satan's power to control you. So all of these five benefits are potentially yours you need to accept these five benefits. Why don't you take some time today to thank God for those five benefits? Now, just as we wrap up, I've noticed that some people hesitate to accept God's amazing free gift of what Jesus did on the cross out of one thing, fear. And that fear is roughly worded this way. Well, I'm afraid that if I accept Jesus as the Lord of my life to control my life, I won't be able to keep myself saved. I won't be perfect. Friend, can I just say this to you? You can't keep yourself saved. 
It's God's job to keep you saved. Look at this next verse in Philippians 1. It says this, Paul speaking, You can be certain of this. Certain. God who began his good work, see it's his work, not your work, within you, will continue his work until in you until it is finally finished to tell us die finally finished on that day when christ comes back so here's the good news remember at the beginning god always finishes every single thing he starts including your salvation isn't that great news so let me say this to you you and i are both going to die with unfinished business. Not everything's going to get done. And that's okay. But the most important thing has already been finished. And it's been completed. And there's nothing more you can add. It's your salvation. Because it was done 2,000 years ago. Ephesians 2 says this. Saving, being saved, is all his idea. In other words, God's idea and it's all his work. You don't work for it. Jesus did the work and completed the work to Palestine on the cross. So let's go back. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. Now, you see why I call this message, It Is Finished. There's nothing more that you or I can do. And what I'm saying here is the difference between Christianity and every other faith. It's a difference between do and done. Christianity says done. Every other faith says do, 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 do. So when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, it has all been done. One guy came to a pastor once and said, Hey, pastor, tell me, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And wanting to shock him, the pastor said, you're too late, buster. And the guy was shocked. He says, he wasn't expecting me. He said, what do you mean I'm too late? He said, you're too late. There's nothing left that you can do. It was all done for you 2,000 years ago by Jesus. To Palestine, it is finished. I don't know whether you've looked recently at your life insurance policy, but there's a section in there called death benefits and it lists the benefits that goes to your ears when you die now today i have briefly described for you the death benefits of jesus christ your past is forgiven you have a very clear purpose for living and you have a home in heaven now some of you've heard that before and you're starting to get that your past is forgiven but what about your purpose for living? How's that doing? Where are you going to get your past forgiven, a purpose for living, and the home in heaven? You're not going to get that from anywhere else. There's no other place. So you need to stop trying to pay for your sins that have already been paid for, beating yourselves up, beating yourself up, trying to atone for your own sins. Because Jesus was hung on that cross to atone for you. All you've got to do is just accept it. There is absolutely nothing more for you to do to tell us die it's finished let's bow our heads would you pray this simple prayer in humility and authenticity to god just say something like 
Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for me. Thank you that you kept your promise in coming as a saviour to earth, because I certainly can't save myself. Thank you, Lord, that you satisfied God's justice. And with some senses, Lord, it kind of doesn't seem right that for me to go free. And I confess that sometimes I feel I want to pay for my own sins. But Lord, your ways are not my ways. And I want to thank you that you paid in full the bill. Thank you that you paid off the debt that I owe God. Thank you for defeating the fear of death. Thank you for showing me that there's life after death because you were resurrected. Father, thank you that you destroyed Satan's power to control me. I don't want to be controlled by evil or my own flesh. I want to be controlled by your spirit. So as much as I know how today, I humbly say, God, I accept your gift and I want to spend my life, the rest of it, getting to know you and to learn to love you and being grateful for what you did for me because I could never do what you did. Thank you that you love me that much. I'm so humbled by your love for me. In the precious and powerful and matchless name of the Son of God. Amen. Thank you, worship team. God bless you.